0: Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for Product Managers and Innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister. Helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level. For the doctor is in.
1: Hi, this is Chad, your host. And this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. I have over 150 interviews here to help you make that move. And that's a lot to catch up on. And if you want to get the key insights from the first 100-plus interviews, well, I've put those together for you already. Just go to where all the interviews are organized, and that's at theeverydayinnovator.com, and you'll find a simple place you can put in your email and get those 100-plus interview insights. Also, this is the last week to join the next cohort of the Idea Framework course, with a closing December 22nd, 2017. I haven't opened a cohort since the beginning of the year. Get in now and get lifetime access at a special rate for listeners, with live coaching starting in January. Check out the core concepts to become a product master at com slash idea. That's I-D-E-A. And the topic for this episode is all about pricing. It's a frequently asked about topic, and I have a great guest to help us understand the components of a pricing strategy and how to price a product properly. He's Tim Smith, author of five books on pricing, adjunct professor of marketing and economics at DePaul University, and the founder of Wiglaf Pricing. And remember, I take notes for you. So if you hear something that you want to review later, just head over to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 155, and that's where you'll find a summary of our discussion. That was slash 155 at theeverydayinnovator.com site. Please enjoy the interview. Tim, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators and talking about pricing with us. Thank you, Chad. Glad to be here. Pricing does come up a bit for me with product managers. And as you mentioned earlier, as we were just chatting a little bit about this discussion, that less so in your, your experience, probably more uh, maybe senior management, executive sort of roles where I have also encountered it. But I wanted to first ask you just about why why is pricing important? I, I think on some level, that seems like an obvious question, but I ran into organizations that don't have a—they they don't really have a thoughtful strategy towards pricing. So let's start there.
0: Yeah, it's a good place to start. First of all, why is it important? Uh, you, you do some simple examination of a business, and a business has fixed cost, variable cost, units that they sell, and a price. These are the things that basically a business manages, and you, you look at those four variables. You say, well, let's put pressure on one of them, and try to improve things in the right direction by 1%. And you may decrease your variable cost by 1%, reduce fixed costs by 1%, sell more by 1%, or raise your prices by 1%. Repeatedly, research demonstrates that out of those four variables, the one that has the highest impact on profitability is price. And typically a 1% improvement in price delivers a 12% improvement in profitability. Um, this has been found in research case after research case across Russell 2000, Fortune 500, hmm. different data sets. It's just a very powerful tool.
1: I just want to hear that that statistic again, the relationship. You said a a 1% increase in price? Yeah. Gives us a 12% in, increase in profits. Yeah. That's pretty impressive.
0: Holding all else equal.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that suggests is is we probably need to be charging more for some things, but where that makes <laughs> sense, and it doesn't always make sense, and that's you know things we need to dive into. So, what is involved in getting pricing right when when we think about a pricing strategy? What are those elements, and how do we how do we get pricing right?
0: Well, yeah, and that's a difficult difficult question. Uh, when you think when you think about pricing you have to first expand, what do you mean? And when you start to ask the question, price where, what, how, are we talking about list prices? Are we talking about pricing strategy, competitive pricing? Mm -hmm. And so I I conducted some research and I found that there are five key buckets of questions that need to be addressed in defining prices and getting pricing done right. The first one is the strategy issue things that most people think about all the time. Who's my competitor? Who's my key customer? And what does my company bring to the table that allows me to win against my competitors? Okay, okay? so the, the corporate strategy issue. The second one, which people don't think about because the decision seems to have already been made for them. But if they think about it, they realize they have tremendous power. And I call that section pricing strategy. By that, I mean, what's the structure for instance, you can buy a car, you can lease a car, you can rent a car, you can borrow a car by the hour. Every time a new structure was created, like most recently, borrow the car by the hour, mm-hmm. a billion-dollar industry was created out of nothing, right? And now we got Uber and, and, and Lyft, where it's, I buy a car service for five minutes from a friend. It's completely different structure that disrupts the world. So that's pricing strategy. Okay. It has other elements, but that's the key one. Then the one where uh, product strategists really need to get engaged. And that's markets, market pricing. What's my list price? What do I expect people to pay for this based upon the unit of metric that I have? So, so that's something that the product strategy really needs to get engaged mm-hmm. with. And uh, the next one after that comes price variance. Some people call it commercial policy. But how are you going to go to market? When do you give a customer a discount or a rebate, and when do you refuse? What are those rules for managing that? And then the fifth bucket is price execution. Uh, Believe it or not, some companies really have a hard time getting out invoices and collecting things appropriately.
1: Hmm. Hmm. So, So, yeah. Yeah, just the mechanics. Yeah,
0: just the mechanics.
1: Of those, for product managers, uh, it's good to be aware of each of those, right? So the overall strategy, how do we differentiate from competitors, important. The pricing strategy itself, which I think, as you talked about it, in terms of the, the business model, right? Are, are we selling items? Are we leasing items? Or are we creating a marketplace where people can can meet each other and pre- pre- perform a service? The market pricing, you know, what's the actual list price? And how does our strategy influence that? price variances, you know, what happens when we want to do discounts or run a promotion. And then the actual, let's figure out how we get paid mechanically and collect the dollars and deal with refunds and returns and, and all that market pricing. Sounds like where product managers probably are most often playing, I would think. Um, and that's about, you know, how do we actually come up with the list price for the product? How do we do that? How do we get that right?
0: That is work getting that list price, right. And, the the best methods all involve asking customers some sort of market research, hmm. trying to determine from customers or customer behavior what is their willingness to pay, how, what is the value we're delivering to those customers, and how much of that value do we give them, how much do we take, how do we share the value that we created with our products and services. So that becomes the key questions being asked. The specific market research techniques may involve voice of customer coupled with economic value to the customer, a uh, technique that's been well-documented, uh, conjoint analysis, very common since the 1960s, or some sort of a uh, statistic elasticity metrics approaches to try and understand what has actually happened out there in the market.
1: Probably be helpful to dive into those a bit. It seems like where the, the meat is, right, to actually figuring this out. Voice of the customer. Let's start there. Certainly, we don't go to customers and say, well, people do this, but I don't think it's a, a useful tool to say, would you be willing to pay $39 a month for this service?
0: That's actually a known research tool, specifically, that one right there. Would you buy this if it was 39 Right. And then you ask another customer, would you buy it if it was 69 Okay, The research tool has been superseded by conjoint analysis, yeah. but it's a quick and dirty way to get a ballpark figure. It's always going to push things low, wrong. The voice of customer isn't exactly doing that, mm-hmm. although that may be a part of the overall interview process. That's not its actual goal or its key value add. When you're looking at voice of customer with economic value to customer – what you're trying to do is understand, really, what's, what's the value I'm delivering to customers? What's the value on the table? Uh, so, for instance, let's say we're selling uh, jet turbines, or you can imagine refrigerators. Huh? Okay, if I'm buying a, a jet turbine from <coughs> GE, what was my alternative? I could have bought it from Rolls-Royce. How does this jet turbine compare to the other jet turbines that GE sells? Does it it, uh, use less fuel? Does it use more fuel? Does it have less repair costs, more repair costs? How does it actually, how did this product design actually impact the customer's economics? Mm -hmm. So that's the economic value to the customer. And you may have some models of that impact of your turbine. But they're dependent upon some parameters. For instance, how much a turbine used in gas-fired uh, gas uh, power plants, the value of that turbine may be dependent upon the value of gas. How much do uh, utilities pay for gas? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that number. So I can ask that customer through a dialogue, first of all, if they care about the savings of gas, and then how much do they pay per gas per gallon, per liter, per BTU, however they metric, per Mm -hmm. metric ton, perhaps. Right. So I'm using the voice of customer to really understand what's important to that customer and to elicit some idea of parameters to use to inform a business case of the product. That's what I'm doing in voice of customer plus exchange value to customer.
1: Yeah, and truly try to understand, as as you said, the value that the product or service creates for them. Yeah. And I remember going through this methodology back in the 90s, and uh, it was called solution selling. Yes. And solution selling was all about, this was a business to be business context. And you go in and you talk to your most important customer there, right? And basically, the conversations were, well, okay, how much does this impact you? How big of a problem is this to you? Well, who else is this a problem to in the organization? And, and you start getting a feel to on on the value overall to in a B2B context to the organization, right? Yeah. It was not a short process, but it seemed to be a good process for the B2B setting.
0: In the B2B setting, it's extremely useful. And yeah, that's spend selling, solution selling. So mm-hmm. what's my situation? What's the problem? What's the implications? What's the needs payoff? Mm-hmm. And in B2B problems, you really want to understand the needs payoff. You'll also see this in like pharmaceuticals. As much as we don't like to pay the cost for new drugs, we'll take the hep C solution, for instance, uh, Solvati uh, by Gilead Sciences. It came to the market at $86,000 per, per treatment, which seems absolutely outrageous. But consider, the alternative to curing you of hep C is you die of liver cancer or you, you, you get a liver replacement. Sorry, liver failure.
1: And compared to a liver transplant cost, I gotta think eighty six thousand is a good deal.
0: Typical liver transplant cost in the US is north of one hundred twenty five and up to about five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So now Hep C Solvati that only worked ninety five percent of the time, but you still see clearly this was a cost savings mm-hmm. for for the American health population.
1: Yeah. So And and that's the value in the voice of the customer research is really understanding how does the product that you're providing, what what value does it create compared to the other options or the other consequences the customer might encounter?
0: Right. I mean, one of the basic three questions for every pricing problem, whether it's discounting or setting, is what's my alternative? Mm -hmm. Are you better or worse? And does the customer care? The voice of the customer tries to answer those three basic questions: How do they? What do they see as your alternative? You may have thought it was this, but it's really something else. How do they think that you are? Are you better or are you worse? Do you need to do more marketing communication so they
1: understand you properly?
0: And did they care about the thing you care you did in the first place?
1: Right. Yeah, is it, a yeah. big enough of a problem to care about.
0: Motorola made an error on that once. Uh, One of their handset phones, they Mm -hmm. created a new piece of software that reduced background noise for the person listening. It sounds nice, uh, but for the person buying the phone, they don't get to hear or see or perceive the benefits. Mm. So the question, do they care, was kind of left with generally no.
1: Yeah, and I've ran into that in in some situations too where we might be investigating a new product and... And even had, in one case, feedback from customers with voice of customer research that, yes, this is a really important problem to us. And yet, as we dove down deeper, we already have some solution to deal with it, and it's, we're not willing to pay anything to do something different. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, when it, when it came to actually putting dollars to it, this is not a product anyone would buy. Right. It was interesting. When you mentioned jet turbines, this also suggest, it reminded me, the actual jet engines that are on aircraft these days... Aren't sold anymore, right? They're they're at least GE. they does a a service model, mm-hmm. and that this kind of research also might might lead to insights into your pricing strategy that you talked about. What is that model? Are we actually purchasing? Letting people buy things as a service, as a lease? You know, how, how do we do this?
0: And, and think about that question and the role of the product strategist. You see very very clearly that. Changing the whole structure disrupts the market and enables a whole new opportunity to be developed.
1: Yeah. And we saw that with software as a service. Yeah. Moving from client-server software with a big upfront purchase to, you know, it's just a monthly fee per user. Yeah. This is helpful. You also mentioned conjoint analysis. And we've talked about that once before on the interview. Really powerful tool, right, for seeing... How it, we might combine different aspects of a product and how customers react to price. Yeah, is that how you're using it, or are you doing something else with conjoint?
0: So conjoint I, I usually reserve for co- products that have a much larger market, like thousands of customers or millions of customers. Mm-hmm. Not for something specialized like a jet engine. Okay, and when you're looking at conjoint, you're you're you you already know in advance what the benefits are that customers care about but you don't know how much they care is that a two dollar solution or a twenty dollar solution hopefully you have some range and so what conjoint analysis does is it allows you to take a list of features and benefits that you already know how to communicate to a prospective customer in plain english and then use that set and measure their willingness to pay for a faster car engine or better gas mileage or whatever issue you're looking at. I've seen conjoint analysis used uh, across consumer products, medical products, and some industrial products. It's a very powerful tool, especially for product managers. And you can also compare uh, Big Mac versus. Uh, a quarter pounder and see what the price differential should be for a Big Mac versus a quarter pounder. So you could stay even in the same grouping and just ask very specific questions. Okay? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, powerful tool. And it helps to get around the direct question of how much would you pay for this? Right. But a way of really comparing those features benefits.
0: Yeah. And the key to conjoints is you're asking people to make trade-offs. Do you want A or do you want B? A is 10, B is 9, But A has this and B has that. Does that make a difference? Yeah. And by having that more simulated real trade-off, you're able to understand how customers behave better. Mm -hmm. It's that real trade-off simulation which enables Conjoint to work so well. But it has limitations. Like voice of customers is more of an exploratory conversation plus perhaps some some narrowing down of issues. Conjoint's a survey. So once Mm -hmm. you've sent it out, You only get the answers to the questions you asked. And as designing conjoint analysis, there are restrictions. Like if I have more than six benefits at five different levels each, it's going to be really hard to create the right conjoint to create reasonable, statistically accurate answers. So you have to reduce your question set and reduce the areas you're looking at to get good numbers out of a conjoint.
1: Yeah, and you're making some assumptions in that pre-work about what you think is most important to really ask about. Right. Good, so powerful tool and elasticity of price. Does that fit in the other tools we've already talked about?
0: Well, demand elasticity comes out of conjoint, so you can kind of get it there. Mm-hmm. But when I'm talking about the statistical approaches is... It's a different problem space. Now, let's think about a grocery store or a, a hardware store. They don't have one or two products. Right. They have 100,000. And if you're Granger, they have 1.6 million. To conduct a, a customer research on every single product out of $1.6 million is an unrealistic approach to doing this. So you have firms like Parker Hannafin, they make hydraulics, and, and uh, Safeway, Roundies, uh, you know, in the grocery store areas. They use more of a statistical approach to try to guess what that price can be and then test it in the market. And if it sticks, then you take a better guess and you raise it a bit more. If it doesn't stick, well, you lower it. Mm-hmm. But you're constantly trying to test and, and adjust to those prices. And it's a nice method of managing hundreds of thousands of SKUs, shopkeeping units.
1: Mm-hmm. This testing approach, where is this ap- applicable and where is it not? You know, It seems like there's times that testing could backfire because you might set a precedent and, and not be able to move from that.
0: Yeah, you have to be careful in the test design. For instance, if I charge you $2 and I charge the next person $3, and then you find out, you may be unhappy with me and never shop with me again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's one problem. Uh, so that's test design. Uh, if, in general, elasticity will, will often, if I measured it directly, I'll often find I should lower my prices. But my strategy is to be at this different point. And so I have to very be very careful in how I actually describe my test and what I want out of that test mm-hmm. what is it I'm trying to learn okay. people do it though' uh, it's, it's, it's a common Kelloggs does that particular approach Kellogg's the cereal maker
1: and that's a good example you know uh, grocery consumer goods how does that work with promotional pricing because I, I would guess that promotional pricing can do a couple things for you obviously create some visibility and prom- helps you promote the product it could also be part of a testing approach to say, you know, are we at too high of a price point here? And this is a way to say we could go down and change it or, you know, a promotion is short term. Where does the promotional pricing fit in?
0: I'm glad you got to promotional pricing, but I want to be careful before we even touch on whether or not it's a way to test prices, test prices or not, because obviously it is, but that's not the question that I think we should focus on. The question is, is should you promote at all? Should you have discounting and promotions hmm. or not? And that may sound like a strange question, but con- compare and contrast Samsung versus Apple. Mm-hmm. Apple famously has no uh, discounting or promotions and such. And Apple last I, last I looked at numbers was making 95% of the profit in the entire smartphone market. Impressive. <laughs> with 11% market share. Now, I could be off by a few percentage, but not much. Okay?
1: Back to that initial point you said, of if, you, if you want to improve, increase, raising your price results in a much higher profit increase. So yeah. if they're doing 95% of the profit share over about 11% of market share, that's impressive.
0: Very impressive. In contrast, Samsung... Uh, they have like 22 to 23 percent market share, last I looked, and they were doing about 10 percent profit share. And yes, I'm well aware that 10 and 95 is more than 100. <laughs> that implies that all the other competitors were losing money, wow. as in aggregate. Okay, and you're looking at this, you think, well, Samsung, you must not be doing very well with all your promotions, because Samsung has a lot of promotions and discounts, and Apple doesn't, right? One could jump to that conclusion, but that would be a false premise. Okay, think about where Samsung competes versus Apple. Samsung is, doesn't just have the Note and the, and the very, the very. S8, the nice phones. They mm-hmm. also have some cheap phones. They have some, uh, you know, lower price point, lower benefit point positioned phones. They, their handsets also compete more in Asia, where there's a whole set of competitors that we don't even have in the States. And there's even new okay. competitors coming into China. There's three Micro Max is one of them, but I think that's India. Not sure on that specific fact. Mm-hmm. There, the point is, is that Samsung's competitive set its market strategy, its go-to-market distribution and where it's going is not the same as Apple's. Right. So Apple saying, I'm not discounting at all, no promotions, none of that stuff, is appropriate strategy for Apple, or at least it has been. In contrast, Samsung's strategy of saying, I am going to use promotions and ways of trying to get people to switch from these other competitors to mine is appropriate to their strategy. Mm-hmm. Does it impact their profitability? Yes. But they have two different viewpoints on that as well. So
1: It's reflective of the marketplace they compete in, what the other competitors are doing, and what the customers are willing to, to pay for. Yeah. Apple's done a good job creating a, a closed ecosystem, which is the reason I moved from Samsung a few years ago to Apple, not because I particularly thought it was a better phone, but it basically works right the the i I was buying into the ecosystem
0: yeah yeah you were buying into the ecosystem yeah so we've i have also highlighted the 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 key role of product strategy in market level pricing and i've shown how we've discussed briefly about how product strategy can inform the price structure whether it's Two part tariff, tying arrangement, unit pricing, add-ons, versioning, bundling, revenue management, yield management, SAS, SaaS, whatever. Okay. They should mm-hmm. be making that decision. When you get to promotions, we're in an area where product strategy needs to engage, but maybe not in, make all the decisions. They need to be aligned. What do I mean? Product strategy, when you, when you got a new product coming out, you may say, I want no discounts on that new product. You can discount the old ones, but not the new ones. Okay? Product strategy needs to design or work with sales and marketing, communications, and finance to define that commercial policy, Mm -hmm. to define that price variance policy. What products are off limits for discounting? What products can you discount? How much can you discount them? That's a decision that Product strategy really needs to be engaged in.
1: Good. One organization I, work, I worked with, their discounting strategy was impacted by the customer, how long they've been a customer, and how much they buy from us, right? So, the idea here was the more products they're buying from us, the, the more eligible they are for discounts. Just just another strategy, right?
0: Yeah. They're not uncommon. I've seen this before.
1: So, in talking through all this, there was a big emphasis on the value created for the customer and that's really driving the pricing strategy. I haven't talked anything about the cost part of this. You know, uh, Aside from it, you know, in the beginning, we, we know we have fixed costs and variable costs. Mistakes made based on pure costs? Thoughts on that?
0: I know of a very large German hand tool company that uses a standard 68% margin on every hand tool they make, power electric tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're probably leaving money on the table right and left. When you have these cost-plus peanut-butter approaches, you're missing out on the opportunities. And sometimes an offering should have a 95% margin. Sometimes an offering should have a 2% margin. Mm -hmm. So uh, thinking in terms of the customer, one, it allows you to identify opportunities that are profitable, just not as profitable, at the lower margin area. And two, it allows you to identify opportunities to raise prices because the customer will pay it.
1: Because it's creating more value. And that's important. And especially in comparison to other options, we get into problems where a a product might be perceived as the cheap, undesirable option just based on its pricing comparisons.
0: Yeah. And I see that bread and butter. I see the peanut butter approach used in industrial markets and consumer markets on a regular basis. Hmm. Grocery stores, even in cat cat man, category management, they're basically using peanut butter's approach and saying, on vegetables, we want a 4% margin. On condiments, we'll take a half percent margin, you know, kind of an approach. But they're still taking a, a, a peanut butter. All of these products get the same margin. And they're leaving money on the table. It doesn't have to be done that way.
1: And I'm just curious, the the peanut butter phrase, what is this? So I I get you're talking about just a cost-plus approach, but what's the peanut butter phrase?
0: What I mean by that is saying that everything gets the exact same margin, Okay. as opposed to acknowledging that some of them, it's like peanut butter. You can buy it chunky or smooth. And most people like the smooth peanut butter where everybody gets the same thing. Mm -hmm. But when you get chunky peanut butter, some things get really fat margins and others... Not so much. Think in terms of where, where's the opportunity and where do I need to give?
1: Good. I'm, I'm glad, glad I asked you about the, the cost plus approach and value is where our emphasis should be. Good. Many other things we could talk about, but I also love innovation quotes. I asked you to bring us one. Can you tell us what the innovation quote is and why you chose it?
0: Yeah. So I chose an innovation quote by Malcolm McLaurin. He used to be the manager of the Sex Pistols.
1: This should be a good one.
0: and what he what he stated was quote in an authentic world failure is something you embrace it's almost a noble pursuit i come from that world it supported me in creating the punk aesthetic i like that quote i do um when, you, when you're trying new things, when you're building new products, when you're creating a business out of scratch, which mm-hmm. is what I've done at Wiglaf Pricing, you're going to make mistakes and fail a lot. Rather than be afraid of failure and run from it, embrace it. And when you embrace it, you're also learning from it. You're embracing your failure so you can understand why it failed, what went wrong, and you move on. And you're not feeling ashamed by it. Instead, mm-hmm. you say, this was this was bad. How do I not do that again? How do I make sure I avoid that again so I can touch the good someday? Right. So it, it is almost a noble pursuit. To, to, to refuse failure is to refuse to try and stretch yourself and make something better happen.
1: And this is all learning. And I'm curious about... Malcolm M- McLaren's, his journey through this, because he, in that quote you said, it supported him creating the punk aesthetic, and how many failures went into that before he evolved or stumbled on something that really took hold of the customers he was trying to serve, you know, the, the, the younger generation at the time when the Sex p- Pistols were around. Yeah. Interesting. W- w- one of my favorite failure quotes is just a Japanese proverb that says, fall down seven times, get up eight. And it's just this idea, you know, you you learn something each time, keep going. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that with us. My pleasure. And for people that want to know more about pricing, this often comes up in discussions, especially with uh, senior managers and executives I have. I think it's a good topic for product managers to know about and have some insights into. But for people that want to know more about pricing, the work that you do, I know you have some courses available on pricing as well as some very good books on pricing. How can we find out more about that?
0: The Professional Pricing Society is a society dedicated to helping executives manage price and learn about pricing and network about pricing. So I've been working with the Professional Pricing Society and I've actually become their academic advisor Hmm. to their Certified Pricing Professional designation, which is nationally recognized. There, There are some courses there on how to price, how to manage discounts, how to define a price structure and, and others. So that's one area. Mm-hmm. I have several courses with them. The books that is probably the most relevant are two. One is a textbook called Pricing Strategy, an actual textbook with, you know, end of chapter homework problems that walks people through all the big concepts, the basic fundamental concepts of pricing. So if you want to actually do pricing, You read pricing strategy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: If you're a senior executive, it's you probably need to know more how to manage pricing than to actually be the expert at the action of pricing. So that's why I wrote Pricing Done Right. Pricing Done Right explains the value-based pricing framework and walks you through how to design your team, organize your company, and get pricing done right at your company. Both of them are available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or Better
1: Books. Excellent. And that was Pricing Strategy, the textbook version of the details of how you do pricing. And then Pricing Done Right, more of the executive perspective on the value-based pricing framework. Correct. The society you said was the Professional Pricing Society? That's correct. And you must have a website yourself with information about these things.
0: I work at Wiglaf Pricing. So, that's wiglafpricing.com.
1: W-I-G-L-A-F pricing.com.
0: Yeah. You want to ask me who who Wiglaf is, yes?
1: You know, I thought I'd have to do that sometime, so tell us now.
0: Well, first of all, I can't name a company Tim Smith and Company. I
1: Well, there's that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, I was reading Beowulf at the time Hmm. and Wiglaf was Beowulf's Advisor. Ah, okay. So I thought his naming a consulting company that helps executives, the modern day equivalent of kings, and mm-hmm. such, that helps executives do what they need to do after the very first recorded Anglo Saxon fictional advisor, Wiglaf, would be a great idea.
1: And now it's much more memorable that we know the story laugh Pricing.
0: But no one knows the story of Beowulf, I found out. <laughs> Again, failure. Embrace it, but then move forward.
1: <laughs> That's just a little bit too obscure, but, but I like the story. That's good. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing the information, uh, how we can find out more and get a hold of resources to dive in deeper. And appreciate you bringing the topics to us. No problem. My pleasure, and thank you. Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Tim at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 155. And as I always encourage you, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product
0: masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.